We praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, triune God, that you are a God of grace and mercy. We pray now that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning, that we would not just hear your word read and preached, but that you would use it to change us. For the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. It's so good to see you all. I'm really happy. I feel especially happy to be here with, with you this morning as we are in the season of Pentecost in which we're giving a special attention to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I, having been a Christian for about 20 years now, I've noticed that Christian communities tend towards one of two mistakes when it comes to the person of the Holy Spirit. On the one hand, there are Christian communities that talk very easily and frequently and often about the Holy Spirit and sometimes emphasize the more supernatural or charismatic gifts of the Spirit, speaking in tongues or prophecy or healing, all good things in themselves. But what often happens in these communities is that a spiritual hierarchy is created in which certain people have the Spirit, other people don't. Some people are more spiritual than others. A caste system of sorts is created that can be really harmful to, to the church. On the other hand, Often other kinds of communities, uh, maybe Jake, like the one that Jake grew up in, or, or often Presbyterian churches maybe fall into that, in which we are so concerned about the misuse or abuse of the Spirit that we neglect him or downplay the Spirit altogether. You might have heard about the person who was worshiping in a Presbyterian church one morning, and about five minutes into the service, he, he, he just felt stirred, and he shouted out, amen, uh, and many people were sort of disturbed around him. And then about 10 minutes later, he again uh, shouted out, hallelujah, and there was a greater disturbance. And then finally, about 15 minutes in, he yelled out, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And th at this point, an usher rushed in and leaned up close to him and said, sir, you must control yourself. And the man said, I can't help it. I've got the spirit. And the usher said, well, you didn't get him here. <laughs> well... May it, be never, may it never be so for us, friends, that we would be called Binitarians because we are indeed Trinitarians. We believe in the powerful work of all three persons, and the Spirit is the one who makes it possible for us to know the grace of Jesus Christ in everyday life and experience the Lord's power. And so we are, we are, <laughs> hey, somebody's got the Spirit here today. So friends, what we're doing these three weeks is that we are looking at three really remarkable Old Testament promises about the Spirit and how we who now live in the age of the Spirit in which not super special spiritual Christians have the Spirit, but every single Christian is promised the gift of the Spirit. And what does it mean for us now to draw on and receive these great promises of the Spirit in our everyday life? So last week we looked at the promise for thirsty souls. Today we are looking at the promise for stony hearts. And we're looking at this wonderful passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. So turn there in your Bibles or look at your bulletin on page 7. A little bit of context. If you've never read the book of Ezekiel, I highly commend it. It is a wild and crazy book. Very exciting in many ways. Ezekiel is called to be a prophet to his own people in a time of great hopelessness in the time of Israel when they are living in exile in Babylon for nearly 30 chapters. Ezekiel warns the people of God about their rebellion and their idolatry and warns God's judgment upon them. And all of this culminates in chapter 33 when they receive news that the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. It is a terrible and dark day in Israel. And yet, 
In the midst of this capitulation and this building up of hopelessness, the word, the promise of God begins to come right here in chapter 36. So let's hear God's word together. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before your eyes. Now, here comes the promises. See if you can count them. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. It was just over 50 years ago, January 1968, in an operating room in the Stanford University Hospital, two human hearts lay side by side on a table in two separate basins. One of those hearts had just been removed from a 54-year-old man who lay next to the table, now with a big gaping chasm in his chest. The surgeon uh, who had just removed that heart was a man named Norman Shumway, and he was attempting the first ever heart transplant in the history of American medicine. And people told him he was crazy. They said it was outrageous, that it was impossible. Many people even said it was actually immoral and illegal for him to do this. But now after three and a half hours of surgery, there lay this man with a gaping hole in his chest. And at that point, very carefully, he took the new heart of a young woman who had died of a brain aneurysm, and he placed it in the chest of this 54-year-old man, and he sutured everything together, and he connected all the vital veins, and then the whole team just sat back and stared at that motionless heart and waited. Those who were there said it was like time stood still. They waited five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, no beating, totally motionless, And then finally, just as they began to give up, after 25 minutes, that heart began to beat. It was the first successful heart transplant. And it was like the Mount Everest of American medicine at that point. It broke open all the kinds of modern medicine that we have today. The promise of a new heart. This is what God is promising in this text today. A heart transplant, the promise of a new heart. And one of the reasons why that surgery was so controversial is because throughout history, many people have viewed the human heart not just as an organ of the body, but actually the place of the human personality, the seat of the soul, the place where the spirit dwells. And so we know that when God says, I promise to give you a new heart, he's not talking about our organ. He's talking about, I'm promising to make you new. I'm promising to change you. I'm promising to give you transformation and renewal. That's that great promise to become a different kind of person. This is the promise that God is making to 
people who have cold, stony, dead, and unmoving hearts. He says, I promise you that through the Spirit, I will take that cold and stony heart and I will make it new. It's a heart transplant. That's what God promises today through the Spirit. So let's, let's look at this passage. Um, first by looking at the problem of the heart. When we are talking today about a transformation of the heart, it's just another way of talking about the human longing for personal change. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you are religious or not, I'm certain that all of us here can resonate and relate to a desire for personal change, a desire to be different in some way. I think all of us know that there are parts of ourselves that are broken and not right, and there are all, all of us have parts of ourselves that we wish that were different, that we wish could be a better version of ourselves. I just spent a little bit of time yesterday in the app store, um, and I just sort of scanned through literally the hundreds, if not thousands of apps that are dedicated to helping people change. And there are just so many of them. There are apps for focus tools and meditation techniques and diet controllers and sleep monitors and brainwave tuners and productivity managers and financial evaluators. There's even an app to help you stop swearing, which I'm not really sure. I don't know if you like insert the phone into your mouth or something like that. I'm not really sure how that works. But anyway, uh, what, what, what it spoke to me is that there is this universal longing among humans to be different and to be changed and to make advances in becoming more of the person that each of us want to be. And yet almost the entirety of our attention and the things that we buy and sell and hawk and trade are entirely focused on changing our external behaviors as if we can change a few mechanics about our lives and we'll be a new person. Well, the Bible has a different approach. It affirms this desire for change, this longing in every one of us to be different as a God-given desire. And yet it says the problem is much deeper. And therefore, the solution has to go much deeper than pure mechanics and behavior management alone. Look at Ezekiel 36. God's people need a change. They're wrecked. They're broken. They're sinful. They've fallen apart. Their nation is destroyed. They desperately need to be changed. God's people need to be different. And yet, what does God offer? He does not offer a new set of laws. He does not offer a new set of techniques or mechanics. He does not offer a new ritual or a new sacrificial system. What God offers is a new heart. I will give you a new heart. He sees that the problem with his people is not just their behavior, but is that in deep within every single human being is a deep rebellion, a resistance, a hardness, a coldness, a spiritual desensitization that actually keeps us from becoming the people that God made us to be. It's a stony heart. Paul says something very similar in Ephesians 4. Look with me here. He says, this is, he's speaking of people before they're changed by God. He says they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? The hardening of the hearts. Paul has the same diagnosis. He looks at all of humanity. He says the problem with the human race is not our behavior, but is a deeper darkness, a stoniness, a hardening within that actually resists the purposes and resists the love of for which we were made. Sometimes I use this illustration, especially when I'm talking to students. But you know, if you take a, a simple rubber ball 
and you put pressure on it like this to make it flatter and smaller and to take up less space, and then you let your hands go, the ball just pops right back into shape. But if you take a can and you put the same pressure on it to make it smaller and flatter and to take up less space, and you take your hand away, it stays put. Why? Because I just temporarily restrained the ball through external force, but I actually permanently altered the systemic structure of the can. And almost all of our attempts at personal change are the rubber ball. Almost all of us have attempted to put external pressure on our lives through behavior modification, through religion, through morality, through trying to keep the Ten Commandments, doing all this stuff. And what happens? It just pops right back into shape because it is a temporary restraining of human behavior without fundamental change. Paul says that very same thing in Romans 8. He says, the law is powerless to produce change. Why? Because it is weakened by the sinful nature. So this is the great problem, friends, is that there is actually a deeper problem when it comes to human beings, that no gym membership or no Fitbit or no budget software or no new technique will ever actually get to because the problem with humanity is the problem of the human heart. We need a deeper level of change. But here's the good news. The good news is that in this passage, this is exactly what God is offering. He is offering the transformation of the heart, and he's promising to do it through the Spirit of God. The Spirit, that third member of the Trinity, is the one who throughout the whole Bible is the one who awakens and breathes and makes alive and enlivens what is dead and cold. Imagine You being there at Genesis 2, when God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground, and he's standing there, this inanimate statue made of mud, kind of creepy, right? And then what does it say? It says, God breathes the spirit of life, and he becomes a living being. The spirit is the one who animates and who brings dead things back to life. Or speed up. Imagine you were there in Ezekiel 37, the chapter right after this one, when God brings Ezekiel to the valley of dry bones, and there's this scattered bones everywhere, and God says, Ezekiel, tell these bones. Begin to preach to the bones. Now, I preached to some tough audiences before, but I never preached to bones. And he says, preach to the bones. So he starts preaching to the bones, and the bones all start coming together. They connect, and then flesh begins to cover the bones. And then like this weird sort of creation, Genesis 2, 2.0, or this reverse kind of weird horror movie, they all come together, and they're standing there in this inanimate, lifeless army. And then he says, now preach to the Spirit. And he preaches to the spirit and the spirit comes and breathes on this army of dead inanimate soldiers and they suddenly come to life and it is a vast army of God's people. Or think about being there in the tomb of Jesus Christ and Holy Weekend and there Jesus' body lays dead, that dead body of Jesus, lifeless, laying on a slab in the tomb. And then suddenly the spirit of God begins to blow 
and it enters into the body of Jesus and his limbs begin to move and his eyes begin to flutter and he opens them up and he is risen from the dead. Or imagine yourself in that upper room where Jesus says to this group of betraying, frightened disciples, I am sending you, now receive my spirit. And he breathes on them and these cold and broken hearts of the disciples are radically changed and they become a force that changes the world. Do you see what the spirit is? He is the one who animates. He is the one who breaks through death. He is the one who brings death to life, who takes stony hearts and makes them warm again. And this is what God wants to do in you. Do you believe that? He wants to do this in you through the Spirit. He, look, look at these promises in Ezekiel. Look with me at the text. Verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. That's the first thing the Spirit does, is he takes the work of Jesus and he applies it to your life so that you can be forgiven. He transfers you to be from an orphan to a son, from a slave to a child. He applies the work of Christ so that you are forgiven. But then, then he takes it a step further. He says, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So God through the Spirit gives you a heart transplant. He actually takes out the heart of stone and rebellion and resistance and spiritual deadness, and he replaces it with a new heart that is warm and that beats with the passion and the disposition for God so that you actually begin to desire new things, the things of Jesus and his kingdom. You know, I'm a sucker for sentimental sports movies, and one of my favorites is uh, that old 1980s movie, Rudy. Y'all remember that movie? And uh, Rudy is this kid who loves Notre Dame football. And so he goes to Notre Dame and he walks on the team, but he's too small and too puny and too slow for anybody to ever put him, you know, on the starting team. And yet he practices harder and works harder than anybody else on the team. And at one point the coach says to him, Rudy, I wish that I could take your heart and put it in the bodies of all my other players. And this is the promise that God makes to us through the Spirit, that he would take the heart of Jesus Christ, the passionate, obedient, perfect heart of Jesus, and transplant it into the heart of his people that we might desire and be energized for new and different things. Heart transplant. And then finally, verse 27, he says, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is astonishing. Not only does God say, I will do these things for you, but then I will come to live in you. I will actually take up my habitation within you to empower you to do what was previously impossible. I will enable you to keep my law. I will enable you to desire holiness. I will enable you to fight temptation. I will enable you to live a life of faithfulness and holiness. I will empower you, my spirit in you, to do what was impossible for you before when you had nothing but a cold and stony heart. So do you see this amazing work that is only possible through the spirit? He forgives us. He changes us. He empowers us. If you like theology, we could say the Spirit justifies you. He regenerates you. He sanctifies you. This is the work of the Spirit to enable us to do what was previously impossible. I'm not Presbyterian. Say amen or something, y'all. So, so listen, here, here's what this means. Real change. Listen, this is what this means. Real change is possible. You actually can overcome temptation. You can actually fight against sin. You can be overcoming of your fears. You can actually be the, the person that you have always aspired to be. Why? Not because of anything in yourself, but because of the Spirit of God who lives in you. 
You do not have to be defeated by the sin that defeats you. You do not have to be trapped by the temptation that overcomes you. You do not have to be consumed by the fears that consume you. You don't have to be terrified by the people that terrify you. You can be new because the Spirit of God now abides in you, his people. So how do we respond to this? I just want to try to apply this just for a moment here as we prepare to come to the table. I just want to apply this to a few different kinds of people that may be in the room today. First of all, I want to say this to those of you who may not be followers of Jesus or who may not be Christians and you're just sort of exploring. I think this does a really good job of clarifying what is a Christian. What is a Christian? Is a Christian someone who goes to church or who reads their Bible or who tries to be a good person, who tries to keep the Ten Commandments, who votes in a certain way, who acts in a certain way, who has a good exit plan for heaven when they die? I mean... What is a Christian? We see here that a Christian is none of those things. That a Christian is a person who has been supernaturally renewed. A Christian is a person who has trusted in the gospel, which is the good news of God's grace in Jesus. And then by believing in that good news has been filled with the spirit and the work of transformation is beginning in them. To be a Christian is to be one who is transformed in which God is doing a renovation work from, from the inside out. Being a Christian is not cleaning up your house and putting the messes away and putting a new coat of paint. That is external pressure on the ball that does not bring fundamental change. That's morality, that's religion, that's self-help. Being a Christian is a developer buying the house, sending in a one-man renovation team to gut it and to make it new. It is Jesus Christ buying you through the price of his own blood and sending in the spirit to do a work of renovation and the blueprints that he is using is none other than the person of Jesus Christ himself who God seeks to change you to be in conformity with his person, Romans 8, 29. That is what it means to be a Christian. And so the gospel is not a command to be good, it is an invitation. First, to admit that you have a cold and stony rebellious heart and then to receive the good news of Jesus and his spirit, to be cleansed of sin, to have a heart transformation, and to become now a dwelling of the spirit. Don't you want that? I mean, who wouldn't want that? That's beautiful. So that's one thing, I mean, what it means to be a Christian. The, another thing though, I think there's a lot of us here who might struggle with what does it mean to live walking with the spirit every day? I, I struggle with that a lot. I think for probably over 10 or 15 years of my life, I've really wrestled with how do I, I don't see the spirit in my everyday life. Well, I want to encourage you because some of you may look at your life and it feels very unextraordinary. It feels very boring. And you say, oh, I don't know where the spirit is in my life. I don't speak in tongues. I've never healed anyone. Uh, I don't prophesy, you know, <laughs> where's the spirit in my life? Well, I want to encourage you that the main and central work of the spirit is to illumine Jesus Christ and to enable you to do what you could not previously do. So the fact that you are here this morning, desirous to be in church, that's a work of the Spirit. The fact that you can put your faith in Jesus Christ and name the name of Jesus is a work of the Spirit. Your desire to actually fight against sin and be a different kind of person, that's the work of the Spirit. Your affection for a brother or a sister in the Lord, that's the work of the Spirit. All of these things are the Spirit enabling you to do what you would never be able to do with a cold and stony heart. 
And so you have the Spirit. If you are a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit, and He is now taken up dwelling in you. And Paul says in Romans 8, you now have an obligation to live in accordance with the Spirit. You're called now to no longer live in the flesh, but to live in the new environment, the new uh, nationality of the place of the Spirit, and to live your life in cooperation with Him. What does that mean? Well, here's just a simple illustration. Uh, years ago, we, our family was up in Connecticut with some of our closest friends, and my friend Peter has a little two-man sailboat, and it was out in the water, and I thought, I saw it, I was going on a walk, I saw it, I thought, that just, that can't be that hard. So, <laughs> never been sailing before. So, I got in the sailboat, and I like put up the stick and the floppy cloth, and, uh, and I just sort of sat there waiting for something to happen, and nothing did. And I, was, I started sort of trying to move my body back and forth like this. Nothing happened. And then after a while, my, my friend Peter comes walking along. And I, start, I was actually just very embarrassed because all these other people were, you know, sailing around. And he said, hey, um, do you need help? And shamefully, I said, yes, I do. And so he got in the boat with me. He taught me how to position the boat rightly. He drew, this, he, he drew the sail. And we caught the wind. And a few minutes later, we were skimming along the surface of the water, an experience that I had never known before. And friends, that is a metaphor of what it means to live the Christian life. You are entirely dependent on a power outside of yourself. You need the wind. You need the spirit. You cannot change yourself. You cannot take any movement forward apart from that powerful wind of the spirit. And as Jesus said in John 3, the wind blows where it pleases. You cannot control the wind. And so we cannot control the wind, but that does not make you passive. You can't capture the wind. You can catch the wind. You can live in such a way as to collaborate with the wind so that you are following the lead of the Spirit in your everyday life. What would it be like for you to wake up one morning, tomorrow morning maybe, and the first thing you do is to speak to the Spirit. Thank you for living in me. May I follow your lead today. What would it mean for you to go throughout the day paying attention to the person of the Spirit at work in you, listening for his voice, following his leadings and his promptings? What would it mean for you when you face temptation to not know you have the power to not go the way of sin, but to go the way of holiness now because of the Spirit who is in you? You could meet the Spirit in the reading of the Holy Scriptures where he promises to speak. You could meet the Spirit in the work of prayer. You can meet the Spirit in the gathering of God's people in worship. You can meet the Spirit by taking great risks and trusting him to do what you could not otherwise do on your own. What would it mean for you to collaborate with the Spirit? And that's what we want for you, not to live your Christian life trying to oar and push your body along in your own strength, but to know that you can catch the wind. And there's no life that is more beautiful than that to live with the wind, to live with the Spirit. Last thing. My guess is that there's a few of you here today who are stone cold. And you know it. You know when I say stony cold heart, you know I'm talking about your heart. And that you might feel a deep stoniness and a deep numbness and a coldness. And there might have been a day long ago when you felt great warmth and love when it came to God, but you have long ago lost it and you don't know how to get it back. Or maybe there's something that's really dead in your life right now. Maybe your marriage is dead. Maybe there's a situation in your life that is dead. Maybe there's a place in your soul that is dead. And I want you to hear these words of hope. 
that if God can send his spirit and raise up an army of bones, if God can send his spirit and raise up Jesus from the dead, if God can breathe his spirit and take some broken, betraying disciples and turn them into a world-changing force, then there is nothing in your life that is too cold or too broken or too lost or too far away that cannot be revived and enlivened by the spirit of God. And so I want, you, I want to invite you to do something today that maybe you've never done before. As you come to the table and you know that Jesus is here by the power of the Holy Spirit, I want you to, inv- to come as if you were holding that cold and dead thing, that cold and dead heart, that cold and dead situation in your hands, and I want you to ask the Spirit to breathe on it. I want you to come to the, to the table saying, Spirit, would you breathe on me? Would you breathe on my cold and stony heart? Would you breathe on my dead marriage? Would you breathe on this dead situation in my life? Would you come asking the Spirit to do what the Spirit does, which is to quicken, enliven, and make alive? And I promise you, it might not be today, it might be some day in the day to come, but I promise you, the Spirit will take your cold and stony heart and he will make it beat again. This is what the Spirit does. So let's pray. Let's pray. <laughs> got, some, got some spirit-filled people in the house today. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that the Spirit is the one who gives life. We don't have the power in ourselves to change ourselves. And yet you promise through Jesus and the Spirit that he is to bring about the change uh, that we cannot produce on our own. So come now, Holy Spirit. Come into these cold and dead and stony hearts and make us new. We pray in Jesus' name.